In the golden era of cartridges and videotapes, a crack team of retro reminiscers were created, who would later come to record a podcast for a passion they couldn't resist. These individuals promptly escaped from the modern digital monotony to the retro underground. Today, still fueled by nostalgia, they survive as soldiers of vintage vibes. If you have a love for the past, if no one else can entertain your retro soul, and if you can find them, maybe you can listen to the Retro Guardians. Retro Guardians. Hi, and welcome to this week's episode of Retro Guardians. This is your tech master, all things retro, Jay, accompanied by... The cinematic freak, Ben. I would agree with that. Now, something a little bit different this week, Ben. We are sitting in an underground car park. Which is not out of the ordinary for us. Uh, yeah, it is. We don't normally sit in underground car parks. But we are about to go and see a movie, and I'm dressed for the occasion. So, what am I wearing? A t-shirt featuring a certain building as well as a certain logo saying a certain party. You missed a golden opportunity there, Ben. You're a very serious sort of fellow. You don't make many jokes. But when someone asks you, what am I wearing? It was a perfect opportunity there to just make a joke. But anyway, um, I'm wearing a T-shirt that says Nakatomi Plaza Christmas Party 1988. So that can only mean one thing. We are here to see none other than Die Hard. 1988. Starring... Bruce Willis. And... Alan Rickman. And... Reginald Johnson. And? William Atherton. I could keep going, couldn't I? You could. So, uh, yes, we're going to leave you with the trailer for this iconic movie. It is one of my favourite Christmas movies. And one of his favourite films in general. Probably in my top Top five. Top three, perhaps. And I say Christmas movie in the spirit of Christmas. We know it's not really a Christmas movie, but we all make it one because it suits our narrative. Absolutely. And I don't like romantic comedies for Christmas. I prefer shoot 'em up bad guy, 90s retro goodness. 80s retro goodness. Did I just say 90s? I apologise. I apologise. Sitting right here on my shirt, 1988. I should know that. That's right. And also, you've got a lot on your plate right now, so I can forgive you for this one little lapse. But, folks, this is a a rare opportunity for us to actually see it at the cinema, so we're not missing this opportunity. Yeah, so we're at Village Cinemas. That's hence the reason we're in the underground car park, which is um, quite unusual for a modern... Uh, cinema to be screening an old 80s flick so we've jumped on the opportunity to come and see it on the big screen i have never seen die hard on the big screen and being one of my favorite movies i uh threw all my other responsibilities in life away today and made sure that i was here absolutely so we're going to leave you with a trailer have a bit of a squeeze i'm going to pause this recording we're going to go eat some food indulge in some popcorn and watch this awesome movie and we'll be straight back with you and let you know how it went have a good one, folks. We'll get back to you shortly. Speak soon. Bye. It's Christmas Eve in L.A. California. Is Daddy coming home, Sue? Well, we'll see what Santa and Mommy can do, okay? A New York cop, John McLean, has come to see his wife. Instead, he's going to have to save her. Sit down. Within this skyscraper high above the city... Twelve terrorists have declared war. They're about to be taught a lesson in the real use of power. There is brilliant... Because I am interested in the $640 million in your vault. As they are ruthless. But I'm telling you, you're just going to have to kill me. Okay. We do it the hard way. Now, the last thing McLean wants... Think, David, think! ...is to be a hero. Where's Holly? Hey, Tucker! Where? But he doesn't have a choice. What does he think he's doing? John. They have already killed one hostage. This channel is reserved for emergency calls only. Lady, do I sound like I'm wearing a pizza? He's inside? Who is he? Who are you then? You are not troublesome for a security guard. Sorry, wrong guess, huh? Would you like to go for double jeopardy? have a chance against us, Mr. Cowboy. Yippee-ki-yay, mother. 
Well, here we are. We are back and we are no longer in the underground car park. We have seen the movie and we have retreated back to the comfort of our own homes. Welcome back, Ben. Welcome back, Jay. So, uh, all right, Die Hard. We've seen, we've just uh, come back from the movies. Um, we can what officially, an awesome movie. We can officially say we've seen it in the cinema on the big screen and you know the first thing i think this astounded you too because i heard you go wow was the opening scene the 20th century fox uh trailer the logo that comes up at the start of the movie when that came up in its old school grainy glory we were both like wow no high def here we're talking good old fashioned grainy film i loved it that was the best part of it initially for me but the thing was, while watching it, Jay, it, it sort of dawned on me in the, in the later sequels, they don't really waste time. This film, it's a slow build to get going at the start. Mm. You know, it's you know, it's, it's a fifteen minutes plus setting up the characters, leading into the building, all that, the whole thing at the airport. I think if that was now, they'd rush that, yeah. which is one of the reasons I like that McKinnon took his time with that. It sets up so we get very quickly. The, the introduction of the of the the foyer of the building, the elevators, the whole thing. You're like, this is setting up that. It's setting up the where the party's held and how that play into it, the whole thing. And I loved all that. Mm. And that's a thing that I think is a wasted talent these days, or as yeah. certain people call it, dead air. It's not. You're getting used to the the situation as well as the the claustrophobic setting of being stuck inside a building mm. with no exit. Yeah. Yep. And I, I I have to mention this out loud, Jay. John McTiernan is one of my favourite directors of that period. He directed three films back-to-back that I highly regard as three of the best films of their eras, Predator, Die Hard, and The Hunt for Red October. And all three so, of them, my opinion, yeah, are masterpieces. So, so Die Hard, I, look, um, I loved it. The, the action in this movie was good old-fashioned 80s um, action. Whether You know how we normally talk about these type of movies and we say – don't think too much about the plot. Well, this one, the plot was a little bit different. It was still the good guy, bad guy thing, but it had a few twists and turns to sort of make it different from what you would typically expect. Absolutely. But the other thing to point out too, it was based on a book. Yeah. But a lot of that book is 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 a shadow compared to what the where the film. Yeah, went. I think that they've changed a lot from what I've heard. Like it's yeah, yeah they've changed the plot a bit. Um. The other thing that sort of grabbed my attention with this movie is all the optical effects. So there was little, well, probably no CG. I'm going to say no CG at all in the movie. Everything you saw was was either miniatures, opticals, or just good old-fashioned movie magic, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Now, I will point out something. The gentleman who was responsible for being in charge of the special effects on this film was Richard Edlund. Mm. He was a former alumnus of Lucasfilm and Industrial Light and Magic, mm-hmm. and he would leave there to go on and form Boss Films, and their first film, in fact, was Ghostbusters, Jay, which is another favourite of yours. Richard was in heavy demand during this period, and this was a, also a big deal film for them at the time because, as he said out loud, we'd worked on a lot of fantasy films just before this, and this was the first one It wasn't fantasy. It was, you know, like you said, it was it was miniatures, it was bigatures, it was explosions, and 
it actually um it's believable what i call believable action in a sense that yeah, it's, yeah, yeah it's not fantasy it serves the story obviously but some of the the pyro effects and that in this were amazing mm. um it did get nominated for an oscar for that i do know that for a fact and um i just uh it it it's it's one of those ones where you don't notice it if that makes sense Jay. yeah and um, that's one of the reasons I think Richard was one of the better ones of that time period. Now, I do know also, just one other quick thing, the Nakatomi Plaza building was, in fact, the Fox Plaza in Los mm. Angeles. Yeah, that's right. Yes. And the reason, do you know the reason why they chose to shoot there? Uh, does it have something to do with Fox? Budget, Jay, budget. It yeah. was a building that was owned by Fox. Correct. However, what... I didn't find this out until later. There were a lot of lawyers in that building after yeah, hours. And, and they were pissed off with the noise. <laughs> so they, they couldn't use machine guns after a certain time or before yeah. a certain time. That was the crucial thing about that. But this film was originally envisioned to be made with Schwarzenegger or Stallone. Yeah. This film... They all said no, out. didn't they? Sorry? They all said no. Yeah. Yeah. But... If that hadn't have been the case, a certain actor who we know now very fondly by the name of Bruce Willis wouldn't have the career that he has now. Was this one of his first? This was his first big film. Okay. Now, little bit of trivia. Bruce had been working on a television show at the time called Moonlighting with Sybil Shepherd. Mm. It's actually where I first saw him. And he'd been the wise guy, funny guy for a very long time. He'd done a film just before this called... Um, I'd done two films with, um, I believe, with with um, Blake Edwards. I think it was Blind Date and Sunset. Unfortunately, they didn't set the box office on fire and stalled a little bit. But he was coming off that show, and I think maybe he had one more season to go, and he really wanted to break out of it. Yeah. And then I think the producers took a risk and said, well, well, why don't we give him a go? They approached him. He liked it. Now, we had done an earlier show on The Running Man, Jay. And I'd mentioned the fact that the Running Man script was written by D Stephen D'Souza. I hope I said that right. Stephen had worked on Commando with Arnold. So he had been offered this job because of working on Commando with Joel Silver. Joel was one of the main producers. And I found out that, that Stephen was actually writing the script as they were filming the film. Now, in my opinion, that's a very dangerous game. Mm. But I do know for a fact this is a very common ploy in Hollywood. So a lot of scenes were literally written the day before they were shot. The basis of the film was figured out. The structure was figured out. It was a lot of the in-between stuff. Um, I heard that the stunt coordinator said that a lot of the action, too, was based on the locations. It was real locations for most of the film. They had to figure out how to do stunts in those locations without, like, knocking down walls and things like that. I also know that um, McTiernan had a tendency to film a different kind of style, a lot of whip pans. Whip pans were a European filming style. They weren't really Hollywood yet. They would be in the next couple of years. So he got told off by the, the Hollywood brass of 20th Century Fox. The producers loved what he was doing, but they would see the dailies and go, no, no, tell him he's got to cut that out. Now, the thing that you and I both will agree on, one of the reasons this film is so memorable is the cast. Not just Mr. Willis. It didn't just make him. Oh, absolutely. Alan Rickman. That sensational. Yes. His sensational film debut. Yeah. Which I can't believe I'm saying that out loud. Mm. And Alan had been a very was taken from us too young, unfortunately. Sorry. Yes, he was. Yeah. He had been a very successful stage actor for a very long time. And I think someone at Fox had seen him in a Broadway play or show, and that's where he, he's like, oh, hang on, and that's where that all changed. Um, this was the beginning of that, what we had talked about in Con Air and that, Jay, you remember the bad guys. It was yeah. even if they don't talk, you remember if, you know, they're just in the background and they, they're very distinct-looking or unique-looking or distinct characters. Yeah. And it became a very long, long trend in Hollywood with, with villains. And uh, Carl being one of the memorable ones as well, uh, played by the late Alexander Godding. He'd been a dancer, Jay. He'd been a ballerina dancer for a very long time or something. And 
same thing. They were really going outside the, the norms with casting this film. Now he was he died very young too, forty five. I, I think he was a it was it was a combination of alcohol and um, mm. if I'm not mistaken, it was something to do with the liver or something that that did him in. Um, Hepatitis, yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah, and um, just a memorable guy. I think he was in Witness. That was the other film I was just trying to think of. I've seen him in not that. a lot since '95. No, yeah. no, no. But he went into dancing still. That's where he did for a very long time. Um, a couple of other people I've got to throw out there. Clarence Actually, Gillard. he died in 95. I was just looking. Yeah. That's yeah. why he hasn't been in anything since 95. That would explain it. Yeah. yeah. Clarence, Clarence Gillard, he played Theo, the, the mm. tech specialist that Gruber uses for the, the heist. Yeah, he would cool. go out to be in several very big TV shows. Sadly, yeah, he died not too long ago as oh, well. Really? Yeah, I think it was cancer as well. He oh, right. was in a Matlock with Andy Griffin, and then he would go on to be in the, the whole run of Walker, Texas Ranger with Mr. Chuck Norris himself. Mm. So he was always on screen. I always remember him. So Now, was, one of them uh, was also Vigo in Ghostbusters. That's correct. I was waiting for you to bring that yeah. up. Um, he's another guy that's distinct. As soon as you see him, you know, yeah. you remember him. Also, Artie Long. I have to mention Artie. Everyone remembers him from Big Trouble in Little China and Lethal Weapon. He was always in the background. Several of other John Carpenter's films, like They Live and Escape from L.A. and stuff. You always see him, and there's a really good meme out there that says, if you see this guy, you know it's going to be a good movie. But he was another guy, and he was also a stuntman and stunt coordinator. There's a very memorable scene with him in a chocolate bar. You know the scene I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. And um, it was just filled with, to the brim with character actors, this film. You know, Reginald the Johnson, who would go on to be famous after this in Family Matters, Paul Gleason. Paul was always the dick guy. Yeah. He was whether it was uh, the Breakfast Club or Trading Places, same thing. You, you you see him, you always remember him. Um, William Atherton, once again, speaking of Ghostbusters, this is another Ghostbusters alumnus, uh, playing Richard Thornburg, the the TV reporter who gets a bit of car- a taste of karma his way, which we all mm-hmm. remember him for. And like I said, several of the bad guys, as soon as you see him, remember him. I also got to point out Robert Darby was in this film. He plays one of the, the, the FBI agents, Johnsons. Robert's another guy. He, he was in the Goonies. He was in um, the Mania Cop series, Predator 2. He's another one. And I think this is that period of time where he was in big demand as well. And also, I'm going to mention uh, Mrs. McLean, or as she's known in the movie, is Mrs. Holly Gennaro. Yes, yes. Bonnie. Badilla. Bonnie was in the original Salem's Lot, Joe. Okay, yeah. Which yep. was late 70s. She's done a lot of television. She's yeah. still working now. I've seen she her in stuff now. as well before. I can't remember what, but I've definitely seen her face around in stuff. Yeah, she's still working regularly now. Hmm. So, I, yeah, I mean, I know she's still out there. I know she was a lot older than Bruce. Yeah, she's 75 now. Yeah, so I – yeah, she's about eight years older than Bruce. Mm. That was a unique thing to see at the time too. Yeah. Yeah. So when did you roughly first see this film, if I can ask you? Oh, man. Um, I'm going to say – I'm going to say probably – this is testing my memory. Ninety six, ninety seven. Yeah. What do you reckon? I don't know if I saw it with you or not. I can't tell you that. But mm. I can tell you this. I actually saw the second film first. Okay. Yep. Um, I knew what the concept was, and then one time when I was visiting relatives in Wilkenia, said aunt that I've mentioned before, she had it taped it only a week or so earlier and she was telling me she had it and I went could mm. I watch it she said sure put it on and and this like I said the first film I saw Alan in Jay was um Robin Hood Prince of Thieves mm. the second film was Quintly Down Under also featuring um Tom Selleck that was filmed here in Australia and this was the third t- film so I knew him by this point I know it was before Die Hard with a Vengeance. That was the third film that came out in 95. So I would say a bet 93 is when I saw it. And, yeah, I loved it instantly. Just got the beat, got the action. 
Um, I don't think I seen him arrive at the airport. I think she missed that. It's him when he gets to the, the building. That's mm. where I came into it. Yeah. So I I loved all that, like I said, and the whole setting up the building and then we're introduced to each character slowly, significantly, not just the said characters and actors we mentioned earlier, but characters like um, Takagi, who, who runs the Nakatomi Corporation, uh, there's a very good scene with him when he first meets Bruce. And then we meet um, one of uh, several of the co-workers in the building as well. So just to paint a picture for the <laughs> the three people out there that haven't seen it, a New York cop has come out to see his wife who's working in Los Angeles, who was only supposed to be there briefly, but it's turned into now a permanent career move. And he doesn't know what he's going to do. He doesn't know how this is going to turn out. And he goes to the building where she's working at and they're having a big end of the year Christmas party. And he pretty much is there to talk, to get her back or see what's going to happen. We don't know. And he's picked up from the airport by a limousine driver called Argyle. And Argyle asks him, what's he going to do? And he tells him, he said, well, I'm going to wait in the, in the car park underneath park park until you know what's going on, and then we'll go from there. If you need a lift to get you somewhere or whatever, I'll, I'll wait for you. And that's how the film starts. We, we don't know, you know, how, what, where, what's going to happen, only that um, it starts to move pretty quickly. And that was a very smart film uh, in the sense that after it gets motivated, after the terrorists turn up, they don't waste a frame of film. Every single scene contributes to the story mm. in a very good way. I think Matinan to this day doesn't get enough credit for how he's able to work with actors. He did the same thing with both Predator and, and Hunt and Hunt for Red October, the same thing. And it the story works. And that's what I like about his films. You can follow the story and you know exactly what's going on and he shows you. So I also love the fact at this point in time I mean, it became the norm there for a while that these kind of films, Jay, it was it was foreigners mm. with foreign accents. The second one sort of broke that mould and made it American bad guys. But the first one, you remember that. And another significant thing, and you would agree with me on this, you'll never be able to hear Beethoven the same way ever again. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Big part of the film. Absolutely. So I um uh, we won't go too much into the plot, but uh, the things that I mean everybody's obviously already seen it. The, the things I liked with the plot was, I guess you, you sort of anticipated what was going to happen, but then you were thrown a few twists along the way. Wild um, cards, I call it. Wild cards, yeah. I also liked sort of the way the characters um were able to interact with each other. It was a little bit different. So you had different dynamics going on. You had the relationship yes. with Bruce and his wife. You had the other weasel that was trying to snivel up the bad guy's ass by giving them tip-offs. Then you had um, Hans Gruber, you know, trying to portray himself as a hostage and win Bruce Willis's trust. But we all know Bruce is too smart for that, and he noticed the tag tower watch on his hand that he saw on the other terrorists. So, you know, he all these little things. He picked the accent. He knew he was a bad guy. So all these different interactions, and, and Bruce particularly – the way he played that calculated, intelligent cop that knew far more than he portrayed. Like, also, the, he was there's a step a thing, ahead. Yeah, but there's a thing also to point out. One other thing that made that film work is his relationship with um, Sergeant Al Powell. Played yeah, by that was great. Dogs. That was the other. Um, yeah, that was the other one I wanted to mention because here they are talking over a radio, never seen each other before, but they're no, getting but, along like best buds, you know, and they yes. tr had so much trust for each other. Yeah, there's several moments in the film that that absolutely makes that film workable. Now, the one thing I remember someone saying in an in a, in another interview slash podcast or, or debate about this film was Bruce's character was it was the first time he wasn't like Schwarzenegger and Stallone. Mm. He bled. He felt pain. He was very blue collar. That's a, a a term with this film I hear all the time now. It's a very blue collar kind of movie, and I get exactly what that means now. So that's I think a relatable thing for us as the audience mm. why we like this character. He's also not just the hero in this these films. He's the he's the victim at times as well. You know the whole world shitting on him, and yet he's still trying to do the right thing. 
Yeah, yeah. You know, the, yeah. that scene where he, the guy gets on the radio and he goes, he says, how you feeling? He goes, Feel, feeling pretty unappreciated right now. You know, things mm. like that. Like and you Gleeson. said, those little We're going to mention Paul Gleeson as the deputy I mean, chief who was pissing everyone off. And that's another actor that died too young, 67. Yeah, he was in his late 60s, yeah. What's going I, on with all these actors in this movie dying young? I, I don't know, Jay. We I call it the diehard curse? No, I don't think we call it that. Um, Paul was another good, solid actor. He was good at what he did. Mm. Um, he was always these kind of characters, and he did it very well. Like I said, The Breakfast Club as well. He, he's very much that kind of dick character. But it, it works for the story. I do love the scene, even towards the end of it, where we don't like him, but when the FBI come in in it, he starts saying things that he's saying what we're thinking as well. So by that point, you sort of semi-forgive him. But... At the same time, you're like, you can't help but be a dick, you know. But yeah, same yeah. thing, he, you, you always remember these people, and that's that's a fact. So, for example, I know the scene with, with Bruce and uh, uh, John McClane and, and Hans was actually came about from them having a lunch debate when they were getting lunch one day, yeah. and the writer was there too, Stephen, and he asked um, Mr. Rickman, can you do an American accent? And he did it in front of them. And they went, well, what if I wrote this? He said, we need to, and that, this is something he said too, was we need to have these guys have a scene together to help the movie. And at first they were going, no, no, it's got to be the end bit and blah, blah. And he goes, but what if Bruce doesn't know it's him and does the accent? And they all froze and went, even the boys went, that actually sounds great. And they go, yeah, yeah, we can do that. We can do that. And we can set this bit up for later bit. And they're like, yes. So it was originally another character with the roof bit, and then that's that's why they, they swapped it around. And mm. Stephen, like you said, he wrote it the day before, and then the next day they were shooting it. Like yeah, there's a the lot details. of ad-libbing, I think, in this movie, yeah. wasn't there? Like a lot of last-minute script changes. And and even those last-minute script changes sort of uh, created a few goofs in the movie as well. Oh, there's it? a few little ones, yes. So yeah. one thing I do know, do you know the scene when he's he's has to climb down using the gun to get him through the the, the vent to get down yeah, to yeah. one of the other vents. The stuntman missed the thing. Right. Well, they liked it so much, it was the editor that said, no, 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 we don't need to reshoot it. I go, what do you mean? He goes, look. And he showed him, and he goes, just have him grab the next one down, mm. and we'll go from there. Bruce said the scene when he starts saying, the, we'll get together, have, get the girls, have it through laughs. <laughs> that was him stuck in that, that – um, <laughs> Bent for two hours trying to, to figure something <laughs> to say. Sane. It literally was yeah. There was a lot of improv, <laughs> prob, and that was that was McTiernan as well. He would go, we need something in this vicinity. Don't go off on tangents. Stick to this, and he's like, yeah. So the scene, the other bit I love, which is improv, the 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 Playboy pen, pin up that's up on the roof mm. in the the thing when he runs out of the thing and says, girls. Mm. That was just Bruce in the moment. So those <laughs> bits, I love all that stuff. And, and there was another thing, um, while we're on the topic of stunts, um, the film was packed full of stunts. And really, like, this is what I love about 80s movies. They, they're actually doing them. They're doing the stunts. It's not just yeah. cheap, not cheap, but cheap. I mean, like a sellout to use CG almost, isn't it? Like, um, yeah. uh, one of the scenes where Willis... Um, or McLean, I should say, shot a terrorist. Um, I think it was through the table. Um, they were firing the blanks right next to his head, and Willis actually suffered two-thirds hearing loss in his left yeah. ear from that. Like, he has his problems to this day, yeah, I do know that. Yeah, and then you've got, um, obviously, the, the ventilation shaft stuff, and then uh, what other good stuff? Look, the, one of my favourite stunts and most iconic stunts was the um, Hans Gruber, Alan Rickman, at the end, where he was... All right. Now, there's something I want to say about that, and you yeah. probably already know this too. Yeah. The Boss Film guys filmed that. Mm. They got Alan up in a rig, and it was actually the stunt coordinator that said to them, "When Alan, we're going to count to three. We'll drop yeah. you on three. And he looked over and said, drop him on two, because they wanted a real reaction. And that's what sells that whole moment is his reaction. And even he said they were pricks, but it worked. Yeah, and the tricky part with that scene was as as he fell, they wanted to keep his face in focus. Yes. Um, and at the time, it was impossible for, like, a human camera operator to be able to manipulate the focus on the camera um, quick enough to be able to maintain that 
face being in focus. So they actually engineered an automated computer system that would refocus the camera using a motorized focus ring that kept his face in um, full focus the whole fall, which is really interesting. Yeah. Um, I did hear someone say that that um, I think it was Shane Black, who's another writer who wrote The Lethal Weapons and he was in Predator. He said McTiernan told a story that it was it was an analogy of the film too that this is a guy that goes to save his wife and and the whole thing with the watch at the nj that was based on another sort of story and it was his version of redoing it in, in this film i can't think of the name of it off the top of my head if i could i could tell you but i love those little stories too when i hear them now mm. the idea of that having an influence on them yeah and that yeah. was part of the reason mctina did the film actually yeah so this was a it, it got nominated for several Oscars. I don't I can't tell you off the top of my head if it won any. I know it got nomina- nominated for multiples, including production design, including special effects. So, you know, I, I would not be surprised if if it did or didn't win any. But I do know that um it had a big effect to, to this day People, uh, you know, it, it had this thing now that they call it the diehard, you know, um, profile or, you know, it fits into the diehard category, sorry. So after this film, everyone said, we want a diehard film. Mm. And there were so many films, and there's several that are actually our favourites as well, including um, Speed, including The Rock, including Under Siege. They call them now diehard clones. Now, we grew up on those, so I sort of, at the time, didn't realise it. Now I look at them and I can see it. But this was the first. There's no denying that, correct? Mm, Yeah, absolutely. I do know they got very worried about Bruce at the time because of his television comedy background. Mm, mm. So the original poster, which is not the iconic one that you and I both know, was not him. It was just the building. Mm-hmm. Because they were afraid, and then they did a uh, screening, uh, you know, test audience thing, and there was a couple of moments that weren't done in the effects yet, but the audience response was so good. The last second, they put one out with him on the cover, mm. and um, it did very well. Like I said, at the time, it was made for between twenty-five to thirty-five million, and it made over one hundred forty million worldwide. Yeah, and one of the interesting things about the design, if you uh, the iconic thirtieth floor where the um, hostages were held and the Christmas party was, I, I one of the things I marvelled about was the architecture in that movie. I thought for the eighties yeah. that that floor looked really cool, and even the ch- the chief executive's office with all the warrior statues and the Oriental influences, I was actually really paying a lot of attention to that, and I was quite. Um, impressed by how beautiful that looked. And if you take yourself back to the 80s, those scenes would have been really extravagant, you know, for the design concepts and architecture at the time. Um, and that 30th floor was actually a set. It wasn't in yes, an academic yeah, I building. Yeah, I did know that. And it was, it was based upon a, a house um, in the US called Falling Water, which has that same style architecture. And it's one of the most famous um, places that they uh, – one of the – architecture magazines recommend you should look at before you die um, like a unesco heritage site you know so it's um had a lot of influence on that set and it's a recreation which i found really fascinating because that was one of the first things i looked up was what that set was um which yeah i thought was really cool and the other thing was uh, all the city backdrop that you saw from the yes. within that 30th floor was a matte painting with lights and stuff that. to make I did it look know like that. cars moving. Yeah. yeah, really cool. So it's simple stuff, but it just so effective in blending in. Um, and that made me think a little bit about after we walked away from that movie, and I was thinking about the effects and how good they looked. Um, and then I thought about the trailers we saw at the start for some of these new movies that are coming out. And just how overdone they are with computer-generated yes. graphics and effects. I know it's a lazy man. Overdone, overdone. Um, yeah. You know, to the point of like, yeah, okay, they look cool, but it's just so overcooked, so overdone that it's not believable. And then you watch Die Hard, that just uses all optical effects, and you think, wow, that actually is so much more believable. Uh, so, so realistic. 
the one one key person I have to mention, and I don't know if he's still alive. I'm not sure. Was Jackson DeGrover? Mm-hmm. Jackson was a very expensive production designer, but as John said in an interview, he was worth it. Yeah. Jackson's the one that designed all the sets for the film, and you know, like you said, though those sets still are memorable. I do know the open floor unfinished areas weren't sets; yep. they were actually the real fit spaces. Okay, yeah. But the, the 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 famous scene for the, where you said, yeah, that was built on a set. That was absolutely because they destroy it if you remember yeah. in the film. So that anytime something's destroyed, I tell people that's a set. Yeah, yeah. It has to be a set. So they were able to build certain ones with the certain backdrops and that, like you said. And other scenes you can tell it's not. But mm. I always remember that too, Jay. That's one of the things about the first film I always remember was the production design, like you said, the, the offices, all that. Even the stairwells, you remember all that. You remember all the scenes. And that was the other thing about the stunts too. That's really Bruce on top of the elevators in certain scenes. Yeah, yeah. that's really him in the, near the top part of the building inside. That was a real place. That wasn't a set. <clears throat> yeah, they film they film whatever they could where it's not being destroyed. That's what I say. When and they have to destroy it, they have to. Yeah. They did. Yeah. And and in the eighties, look, I don't know. I'm guessing there was some merch back then, but there's just been this resurgence of merchandise in the last you know, 10 years, and there is still so much new stuff being made with the Die Hard brand. Just look at that shirt I was wearing to the movies, a Christmas shirt. They've got the Pops um, collectibles with the characters. They've got games, stickers, all sorts of stuff that you can still buy on eBay and stuff like that. Um, it's just not dying off. It's it's just, to this day, still is a very christmas cult, movie. cult classic well hey christmas movie now this is <laughs> this is a whole nother kettle of fish I um know. is it or is it not a christmas movie that to is the me, million dollar question to me and you it is yes yep yep it is but the thing is uh, that debate it, is going to be universal correct it's, it's going to go on forever it's always been disputed and it will continue to be disputed. I think there was a poll done by BBC or one of the networks wanting to get to the bottom of whether people see it as a Christmas movie or not. Uh, and I think ultimately it came out saying, no, it's not. But it's, there's a difference between a movie that's a Christmas film and one that's set at Christmas. Oh, okay. Hmm. So I don't know. I don't know. I, I see it. I see it as a Christmas film. I mean, the, the poll that I refer to, uh, I think it was like 30% that thought it was a Christmas film. Uh, so there's not many. But, yeah, oh, look, I'm going to put it in my Christmas book because I tend to watch it around Christmas time every year. So do I. So do I. Mm. And, and I love the, I one of the too. best things I've seen was a Christmas tree decoration. And if my printer was working, I would do it. They've printed off Bruce Willis. You would have seen it when he was one in the, the event. event. Yeah, and then they've Something made an event using alfoil. Yeah, and I've stuck it that. on top of the Christmas tree. Bloody awesome. There was another one I saw not too long ago, which I know you'd do if you could do it. Someone mm. did him when he's going down the side of the building trying to kick in the glass. They yeah. actually did one. They stuck it on a window. And oh, I went, oh, yeah, that's, cool. that. that's a good one. So, no, there's some inventive ones out yeah. there, and that's very memorable. Something um, like you do with an elf on a shelf or something. Yes, exactly. But this was the one that invented... Like I said, he he wasn't superhuman. He actually was smart. He used intelligence. It wasn't just dumb luck half the time. There was yeah. a lot of it, but it wasn't just that. He hurt. He feels it. He does run out of bullets, the whole nine yards, you know, mm. and that was the first time at the time that, like I said, it wasn't Stallone or Schwarzenegger. Mm. And that's mm. why I think that also still works now. This is an everyday guy. And as it's said in the other films, how can the same shit happen to the same guy twice or wrong, always in the wrong place at the wrong time? Mm. And, I mean, that goes to show you as well that you know, how many sequels came out of this film as well. Yeah, I guess you would say it's it, it set a blueprint for other action films. That, that's it? the word I was trying to think yeah. of before, blueprint. It set the yeah. blueprint, the framework. It sort of set, yeah, it was the first. Everyone just, wanted a, the, the diehard blueprint after this, yeah. and there are several of them that, like I said, I mentioned earlier, and other ones like, well, you know, that's diehard on a plane, that's diehard on a train. <laughs> yeah, diehard die hard on a bus, yeah. On a bus, yeah, diehard on the, on the Alcatraz, the whole yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. And, it, and it, that's the way... As one of them said, this the industry works. Once something's a success, everyone wants wants the same success. 
And I'm really glad. It only, and to be honest, Jay, it only lasted 10 years mm. when you think about it. Now, yeah. one of the things I will quickly go into with the sequels was only one other film is set in the same location. The subsequent sequels after that moved around a lot because yeah. I think they realised we can't be in one location all the time. It doesn't work anymore after the first couple of films. So uh, just quickly on the uh, uh, sequels, sequels, we won't spend too much time on them. I uh, I can only remember a couple of them. I've got to watch a few of them again. Just <clears throat> really quickly tell me uh, or give our listeners, a, um, I guess, you know, tell me what the sequel is and uh, good, bad, indifferent. Okay. First one, like we said, Nakatomi Tower, Los Angeles. Yep. Second film. Good. Him no, hang on. Yeah, that's a good one. Fingers, yeah. thumbs up. Yes, yes. <laughs> now, the second film is Washington. Yep. He's stuck at JFK. Dallas. Uh, yes. And, I believe uh, you've thrown into, wasn't it? Sorry? You, you've, you have flown into that. Yes, I have actually point. flown yeah. into that place. Yeah. Yes, twice, actually. Mm. And um, his wife, is her plane's been delayed and he's waiting there. He's actually in the area with his in-laws. And that's who he's waiting on. And he, and, and yep. we discovered that there's a very famous uh, South American dictator who's been flown in by the FBI to be picked up. And we discover that he's gotten several contacts, ex-CIA mercs, who are in the vicinity to break him out. And how they do it is they take over the air, airplane, uh, the airport, but they don't do it in the conventional way. They make the tower and their systems useless to communicating with their planes. And so certain planes can be redirected, but they're all running low on fuel. And it was just an interesting idea to swap the, the situation around and put Bruce in a different situation, but at the same time, the same situation. So there's a great scene where he talks to Al again, and Al says to him, what's this all about? He says, oh, just one of those hunches I have. And Al goes, ouch. When you start to get those hunches, insurance companies start to go bankrupt. And so you know instantly what you're in for, but you don't know how it's going to happen and why. So that one I'd give a thumbs up as well. I don't want to give too much about these sequels out, but that's another favourite. Now, that one was directed by Rennie Harlan. And Rennie would go on to direct um, a Cliffhanger uh, shortly after this. And so the third one was the one which was unique because the third one they actually bring back, which is called Die Hard with a Vengeance. Ah, uh, yes. This has got uh, Gruber's brother, is it? Yes, and also Mr. Samuel Jackson in it. They actually brought back the original director. They brought back John McTiernan for this sequel. And a lot of people to this day believe after the first one, this is the, the second best film in the series. Now, what was really unique about this one, it's New York. And the movie's not set in, in one his place. hometown. Yeah, it's set all over the place. Um, someone blows up a building at the start of the film, and then we're introduced to this character who's simply known as Simon. That's all we know him as, as a voice on a phone, played by Jeremy Irons, one of his best roles. And it's only through halfway through the film we discover a great reveal that the FBI are questioning uh, John McClane and his pal Zeus, played by Samuel L. about certain things, and then he says, what the fuck has this got to do with me, blah, 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 and then one of the guys in the background goes, does the name Gruber mean anything to you, Lieutenant? And we see a flashback to Hans falling off the building, and he's like, rings a bell? Yeah. And this guy says, Peter Creek was born Simon Peter Gruber. He's Hans Gruber's brother. And we discover that the thing in L.A., yeah, and this guy's got you lined up for a tow tag and he's going to do everything he can do to do it. Now, the one thing that the sec third film does very well, Jay, it plays on the notion about the family. You know, it goes back to a couple of plot threads, not just with Hans from the first one, but same notion they do in, in the first one, how they're doing the scam and stuff. Same thing, I don't want to give it away. But... The location work in the third one is one of the best location movies I've ever seen. They shot a lot of it in New York. They did shoot a lot of it in Los Angeles for certain action sequences. But they really showcase New York in a very good way, much like uh, Ghostbusters, Jay. A lot of people believe them to be New York movies. 
So once again, that one as well, give another thumbs up to. The fourth film is where it gets unique and interesting. The fourth one is set 12 years after Vengeance. And a lot of people by this point in time, I think it thought that's the end of it. We're not going to see another one, yada, yada, yada. And then Len Wiseman, who had big success doing the Underworld movies at the time, was asked in an interview, what would you do next? And he said, I want to do a Die Hard movie. And then it sort of started a few wheels in motion. So the idea of it was based on an article that was in, I think, the New York or Washington Times about fire sales. Now, this is a term that you know very well, right, Joe? Yeah, tech fire sale. Yes. Bring down the system, the whole thing, you know. It's very easy to start from scratch and all the chaos you can cause. And then who do we shove in the middle of this situation who's pretty much a layman and it represents the audience? Mr. John McClane himself. So this time it puts him in a situation where it goes back to like the second film in that the villains are American and with a few accents in there as well, but the main bad guy is an American. Also to mention with Vengeance, the bad guys are like in the first film, the generally uh, European bad guys. So the fourth one, it's set, all, it's set mainly in Washington as a city and the east coast of America. And we see a few other places as well. And that one, I actually have to admit out loud, Jay, I got to see that for my my birthday that year. I enjoyed the fourth one. There's several moments in it I was really happy with. Yeah, I enjoyed it. I thought it was good. There was a moment when involving an elevator shaft, and I said to myself, now it's a diehard film. Now it's officially a diehard movie. Yeah. But teaming him up with Justin Long was a great idea. Um, I my brothers complained it wasn't Samuel L and you couldn't mm. top Samuel L. But teaming Mr. McLean up with a hacker was a great idea and a great way to sort of move the story along this time. Mm. Um, also, got to quickly mention that in this film it was Timothy Olympia and Tim played Thomas Gabriel, another memorable bad guy, and um, he was also a tech theme villain. And it sort of just definitely brought Die Hard into the 21st century. That's what I really think of the fourth one. Um, I think it was – I was still happy with it, and I've got no complaints towards it. There's one little bit near the end with it involving a fighter jet. That's about it. (laughs) It stretched a bit there, but other than that, nah, I'm still happy with that one. Now we get to also quickly mention the fourth one, they bring his kids back. Now, we only saw his daughter and son briefly in the first film – in the fourth one, we're introduced to his daughter as an adult, played by Mary um, uh, Weinstead, who's uh, currently most famous now for being Ewan McGregor's wife and partner and in a lot of television. And she was also in um, Scott Pilgrim and a few other films. Uh, recently, she was in the Ahsoka TV show for Star Wars. Then they bring her back for the fifth one. Now, the fifth, fourth one, I should mention, was called in america live free die hard in australia it was called die hard 4.0 i prefer that title but the fifth one was called a good day to die hard now it introduces his son john jr played by uh, jay courtney who's australian as his son and it, it puts mclean in russia now by this point I think they waited another five years to bring him back. I don't think that was a smart move. And by this point, I think it, it sort of wore out his welcome. It, it sort of moved into, like I said, into Russia. This one really stretched it with me, Jay. It sort of moved him out of certain um, cliches from the other films, but the, that, that actually made those films fine. And I think it was too little too late. And also by this point, Bruce was starting to show his age. Now, I think he only did the fifth one for the paycheck. So in my opinion, you know, one to four are great. This the fifth one that's like, yeah, this sort of was the end by this point. Now, cool. All I, right. I would recommend you to go back and rewatch them and give me your opinion on them. But mm. I will say this out loud. I give the original one nine out of ten. Yeah, I give it a ten out of ten. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. Bloody good movie. Yeah. And it will always be there. And it's in my top 100 movies of all time as well. Yeah. So 
I will have to say thanks again for recommending me to go see this with you at the cinema. It was really good to see this on the big screen. Oh, amazing. I never – when I see these old ones pop up, it's an opportunity you've got to embrace and go and see it at the, on the big screen because if you and, miss it, and, yes. you and might I agree never with, get that opportunity again. You don't know. I agree with that. Again. I was about to say that. But also seeing them that way now too, you realise like these films were made for the big screen. Yeah, we and look, only back see in, them in the 1988 – I'm, yeah. I even see it at the cinema. This is a, another opportunity. So good on, I'll, I'll give a plug, good on Village Cinemas for uh, screening uh, a good old classic film like this. It's, um, I think they've done a great job, great marketing, really good on you guys, and thanks for bringing these old classics back for us old bosses. And I'm not complaining as much as you are that we get to see occasionally one film like this every now and again on the, on the modern screens at all. Absolutely. So I think that's all we're going to cover in this week's Retro Guardians. As always, I'm Ben. Thanks for listening. I'm Jay, and if you haven't already checked out our website, www.retroguardians.com. And, uh, oh, Ben, you know, we actually forgot something quite epic. Um, What's that? This is our Christmas episode, and I forgot to wish our listeners a Merry Christmas. In all the excitement of Die Hard and uh, seeing it on the big screen, I'm very sorry. So to all our listeners, I should have said this at the start, Merry Christmas. Thanks for sticking with us. Um, and hopefully we, you have a Happy New Year as well from absolutely. both of us. And uh, stick with us again next year. We've got lots of cool stuff in store for you. Now, um, quickly I mean, to mention, it'll be our third year of doing this. It will be short. third season coming up, yes. indeed. So that's so, a milestone as well for us as well, just to mention. And as I hope you, you said, like our new uh, intro music too. I didn't get uh, – see, I keep forgetting stuff. Um, <laughs> I hope you uh, like that. It premiered a couple of episodes ago at the start, Some uh, a nice new uh, theme. So we'll try and freshen that up every couple of years. So you know, you have a nice new one there to open up. Like toes. Yeah. So Merry Christmas. Warm up the eggnog. Grab a uh, Christmas pudding. And a beer. Kick back on your recliner. Put on Die Hard and enjoy. Merry Christmas. Thanks for listening. Have a great New Year. Bye. See you all. Bye. Retro Guardians.